I think it is a what we are going through in society is a taste of what people go through when they're incarcerated. So all those feelings of panic and anxiety that people feel, you can you can multiply that by fifty. That's what a person is going through on keep lock and, and solitary confinement. And if and if you find that it moves you in a way to 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 do something about what you think people are going through, then you have the jump off point for it. Use this as the springboard. The day-to-day lives of Americans have changed dramatically over the last month, including the lives of 2.3 million men, women, and children incarcerated across the nation. To understand COVID-19's impact on incarcerated people, I called Lawrence Bartley, director of News Inside for the Marshall Project. News Inside is a free publication that curates news related directly to incarcerated lives. It's available online at themarshallproject.com, and a print edition is distributed directly to 30 prisons in 19 states. As of Thursday, April 9th, when Lawrence and I talked, the New York Times reported that at least 1,324 confirmed coronavirus cases are tied to prisons and jails across the United States. 32 incarcerated people have died. However, these frightening statistics and the measures taken in response to the public health crisis are obscured and inaccessible inside the information deserts of prisons and jails, where incarcerated people are often unable to receive facts-based news about both the outside world and the changing conditions of their own lives. On this episode, Lawrence helps us understand the challenge of news and incarceration, shares about his own efforts to address the information divide, and underscores the importance of continuing to tell stories during this time. I'm Kate Camel, PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program intern, and you're listening to our new rapid response series, Temperature Check, COVID-19 Behind Bars. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lawrence. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Can you tell listeners um, just a little bit about yourself to start and how you made your way to the Marshall Project? Well, um, my name is Lawrence Bartley, obviously. Um, Unfortunately, I was incarcerated at the age of 17 and I did 27 years and two months. And um, while during my incarceration, you know, I had ups and downs like everyone else. And I always, from the first day I got in, I always had dreams of getting out. I knew getting out would mean I have to go before a parole board. And going before the parole board was like an arduous, stress-inducing task for me because, you know, I had had become this person for about 20-something years. But going before the parole board, they had the person who I was when I committed the crime and and that's who they were considering for release as opposed to the person who I am now. And um, I found myself trying to convince them, you know, that I'm not that old person anymore. And, 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 and and I went to the parole board a combined five times in seven months. And usually a person who goes to parole board five times, it takes 10 years. 
so the person gets what we call hit, meaning they they have to go reappear after every two years because they didn't make it. But through a series of uh, uh, appeals and postponements, postponements, I went quite a few times. And um, going through the parole board so many times, just like it, 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 it brings up like a wellspring of emotions because you're trying to prove yourself. You, you don't know if you're going to make it. And people in the population who, who saw you as uh, somebody who always done it right, uh, a champion, uh, they said, yo, if Lawrence doesn't make it, we're not going to make it. So when I come back from hearing everybody asking me yo, what happened and when I'm waiting, you know, decisions are made five or 10 minutes after each person appears for the parole board. But it, can, it took me 12 to 14 days after every time I appear to get my decision. So I'm stewing for all those days, wondering what's going on. And, and that stewing is being exacerbated by not only people incarcerated, but staff asking me, did you make it? What happened? So. It, it, it was stressful. So in going through that process, a friend of mine said that I should write it down. I should kind of write my experiences down. And I, and I told her, I said, this is not the time for me to write my experiences down. I'm, I'm fighting for my life, not only for my life, I'm fighting for the future of my, my children and, and my wife. You know, they respected me to come home. And um, so I, you know, she, she told me to do that, but I, I was against it at first. But I went into my cell one night and um, I started really to ponder it. And I, and I told myself that if I write it down, I won't just be writing it down for me. The, the feelings that I, I'll, be, I'll be sacrificing these ill feelings in doing it would be for the sake of someone else who's not as articulate as me and can't put his or her thoughts down on paper because they may be going through the same thing. So I wrote it down and luckily the Marshall Project published it and and they published it in April and I, I won my release or earned my release the following month and I was released in May and um, they called me into their offices to talk about the piece and talk about parole and from that meeting they called me back again a few days later and asked me if I wanted to work and that's how I got the Marshall Project. Wow that's an amazing journey and it sounds like you know, a lot of what you're doing at News Inside was kind of inspired by um, this friend of yours that encouraged you to write it down. It sounds like a, a lot of what you're doing now kind of goes back to that. Exactly. That friend, that friend uh, that bit of advice helped me, it helped launch a career. So yeah. I'm eternally grateful to her for that. It's really neat. And so, yeah, you're the founder of News Inside, which is this free news resource that relates directly to incarcerated lives. and could you share a little bit just about the journey of that project? Um, like what your motivations were for beginning it and what challenges you faced and uh, how you made it work throughout the process? Well, um, being, I was fresh off of incarceration, as I explained when I started working for the Marshall Project and I was trying to find my niche, you know, and um, in doing that, I was presented with this plethora of award-winning journalism that we produced. And, and the subject was criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And, and it, in my mind, it, it boggled me that people incarcerated are not privy to the work that we have, unless they have you know, family members who are, uh, Google something on the internet and pull out a story, print it out, and send it to them. And from experience, I know that's hard to have someone to do. You know, asking them to look, or they come home from work, look up the internet, find this 
find this a story for me. Oh, the Marshall Project wrote it. Can you print it out and then go get an envelope, buy a stamp, put it on a stamp, fold it up and mail it to me. Oh, and by the way, it can't have more than five printed pages or it can't get in because the facility rules won't allow it. So I knew that was tough for people, you know, to get uh, Marshall Project work and work in general. And um, so, and, and you should know that when it comes to printed material, printed material in prison is hard to come by. Now, just like people on the outside, you have your haves and, you ha and they have nots in prison. You know, the haves have family members who will um, buy them magazine and newspaper subscriptions and, and buy them books and, and do the work to, to mail it out and send it, send it to them. But majority of population don't have that, you know, so printed material can be tough to come by. And, and the stuff that you get um, is not specifically tailored to your incarceration. So I knew I knew all of that going in. And I, I, I said, yo, what if there's a way that I can put the Marshall Project's work in print and, and get it to them? I know that from my time in prison that that there are screeners that screen material coming in. Even all the material I mentioned that come in, it gets screened. And if it falls on this sort of like a, a, a scoring rubric that that these certain things like it can't incite any riot situation. It can't um have images of contraband, et cetera, et cetera. If it if if it falls on that scoring rubric, then that material piece of printed material cannot get in. And it could be one fifth of that material that falls on that scoring rubric and all of it can't get in. So I, I knew that and I knew that there were innocent publications that that scored on on that scale and weren't allowed into the facility. So I figured if I put news inside together, keeping in mind that scoring rubric, I know the, the landmines to avoid, then I stand a good chance of getting them into prison and jails, and they work. That's so interesting. I, I had no idea that there was like a, a scoring metric to get information in there. So yeah. thinking about that, like what have the responses been kind of just across the spectrum, like how are prison officials responding to it? And most importantly, how are incarcerated communities responding? Well, um, prison, like I've, I've learned to gain relationships with, with prison officials. And a lot of it um, is due to like some of the interviews I have done. And, and, and I try to be honest all the time. And, and I, and I, I, when I explaining about how hard it is to get material into the facilities, I always mention that I understand what prison officials are going through because they don't want any riots to pop off, anything related to escape to be in their publication, or weapons, or something like that. And they want to keep everyone safe. I know that's their job. They're just not intentionally trying to be evil, at least most of them. <laughs> but, um, so... I, I know that, and um, when they hear me discuss those things, you know, they kind of, they, they listen. They say, okay, maybe give this guy a chance because he is speaking a language that we kind of understand. And um, so what I also do is I send the, the lead screeners in those facilities, I send them a PDF of each issue before it comes out. And I, and I ask them, I say, check it out, see if there's anything you object to. And um, if you don't object to it, let, let it in. And I know it's nothing objectionable. In it. And in doing that, the screeners have become fond of the publication 
because you're not just reading it to look for things to um that fall on that scoring rubric. They're looking for they they're reading the, they get fall into the story. They start reading um the material, the information. They say it's so well written and they like it a lot. And um they become fans of it. And so unofficially, uh, many states they tell me, I oh, can't wait for the next issue. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but um it it also has become dear to our readers who it's intended for, which are incarcerated people. And um some of them write me and uh and I and I put uh, excerpt of each of, of not each letter, but some of the letters that, that stand out to me. I put excerpts of it in each issue. And if you want, I can read two excerpts for you so you can hear from themselves, the people who read them. Yeah. And, um, there's two people, a, a person named Justin in Florida. He wrote, he says, I'm writing to express my gratitude after reading the December issue of News Inside. I am 14 years in on a 30-year sentence. It's great to hear of progress towards the many problems with prison in general. For most of us stuck in the system, there just isn't much in rehabilitation offered to occupy our time productively, and news is hard to come by. That's Justin in Florida. There's another guy named James in New York. This one is kind of funny. He said, when I was with the insatiable thirst for reading material, I dug through the pile of old Sports Illustrated to come op- to come upon your publication. In truth, I was going to just pass it by when the yard bell rang, signaling um, signaling those of us not going to the yard to lock back in. So I just grabbed your publication out of fear of being locked in without any reading material. Admittingly, I was slightly disappointed, expecting another collection of poems and ramblings. Boy, was I pleasantly surprised. I found truthful articles packed full of valuable information. I admit to taking some notes before placing the magazine back on the table with the hope someone else could benefit from the reading. Wow. Those must be so gratifying to hear after, you know, having to work so hard to get these inside. Absolutely. When, when people write me, I can have a tough day, you know, explaining it to officials or, 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 trying to get it in, trying to, to work the flow into design, because there's a lot that goes into putting in, choosing the articles, the right ones, and, and photographs, and, and, and getting the, the photographers, paid photographers, getting them to do credit and the people credit. It can be a lot. But when I read these letters, they are so gratifying, and they, they just charge me up to keep on going. And they actually influence what I put in the future publications of News Inside because I always listen to my readers. Yeah, it sounds like a really collaborative project, which is awesome. And like thinking about like, just from what you've said, how hard it is to get this information um, inside prisons and jails. Like we've been told by people we know um, on the inside that conspiracy theories often are a huge part of being in prison and that often they've been escalating in relationship to COVID-19. And so, yeah, we wanted to kind of ask you, like, how can incarcerated communities stay informed with fact-based news sources during this time if they're not able to get information off the time? Well, I already already explained to you how hard it is to get printed material in, but it's easier to watch a program on on the news to stay informed. 
because televisions are prevalent in in every facility almost. Um, but one thing you should realize is that facilities are usually prisons are usually located in remote areas, mm. and even jails. Uh, with the remoteness of prisons, that means that the the news is localized. Same thing with jails; it's all localized. So it might be in a small town. So the information the person incarcerated get can be limited. And um, so what, what I would suggest is that people who are incarcerated, who have the access to family members, who have access to the internet, who have access to different news programs, whether it's CNN, Fox, ABC, NBC, all these different news outlets to ask them questions so they can you know get some of the um, more updated information and more um and they can also express that to their their fellow the fellow neighbors inside the facility and i know that sometimes people can put their own spin on the stuff that they see but and, and so what i tried to do when i was incarcerated if someone tells me something i will remember it i won't i won't act that act like that it's fact until i have it confirmed by someone else either another news source or someone else tells me they didn't get it from the same guy that gave it to me. <laughs> you know, I try to do it that way. And, and most importantly, you know, I try to make news inside that credible news source. You know, right now, News Inside is the only publication that provides award-winning journalism on criminal justice topics. So it's directly relevant to the lives of people who are incarcerated. So when so what I, what I put in articles about what's going on in New York in the criminal justice system regarding the bail, the bail, the new controversy around bail reform, a person in Arkansas can read that and say, well, wow, that's what's going on in New York. Okay. So that reminds me of what's going on in my state with bail a little bit. Well, New York might be going a little bit further. Maybe we could learn what's going on in New York or the same thing or in California or in Houston. So People are learning what's going on, not only in different facilities, what's going on in different states about criminal justice, and it gives them ideas that they can use, and it, it applies them that authenticity, that authenticity that they've been yearning for so long. Right. And how about um, News Inside? How has the publication changed in response to COVID-19? Like, what's the impact been like? Well, on a negative side, um, you know that with this, with this new social distancing rule that we're facing in the community, facilities structurally is hard for them to social distance, but they're trying different ways. And one of the ways are closing programs, closing libraries. So News Inside is usually distributed in libraries. And if the, the facilities are, are locked down or people can't go to libraries, that affects the distribution of News Inside. Um, in, in addition to that, if officers are uh, being affected with COVID-19 and a lot of them aren't coming to work. They might be an officer in a shipping and receiving area that receives news inside and then instructs someone from the library to come pick it up to take it there. Now this officer might be, they call it their bid, they might have been doing this for 10, 15 years, receiving publication and sending it to the library. So they know the process. They could do it without even thinking about it. But if that officer is sick and is, is away from his or her post, and then you have a new officer in that doesn't know, 
then mistakes happen and publications can be sent back. So because of that, I've been had to reach out to all my sources, all my areas where News Inside is being distributed and ask them if anything has changed. Um, should I still sell the publication? And some are saying no because we're, we're, we're locking things down right now, waiting until this is over. Or some are saying, yes, we need it right now. This is a time where we need it more than ever. Please send it along. But on the positive side, um, news aside, was the issue four was ready to go, was ready to press, and then COVID-19 hit. So I know how important COVID-19 and everything surrounding it is to people who are incarcerated because uh, in prison is like a petri dish for this virus to spread. So I, I changed a few things up. I put in COVID-19 relevant, relevant articles inside as well as a new PSA that I won't talk too much about, but it's a PSA that, that's helping people inside deal with it, knowing that they have limitations on cleaning supplies, social distancing, and many of the safety practices that we have on the outside. So I, I try to give them means to adapt to their circumstances and stay as healthy as possible. So that's what's coming up. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting addition. And like speaking of adapting too, like you kind of wrote something similar for uh, the Marshall Project that just published this week, which was um, an article about, or um, an essay about how your 27 years in prison prepared you for this pandemic. And um, you talked about how learning to adapt in prison and um, keep lock uh, was similar right. to self-isolation at your home now. And I was wondering yeah. if you could just talk a little bit about um, like what Keep Lock is for people that might not be familiar on the outside and why this moment feels similar to you. Well, Keep Lock is when a person does something wrong that doesn't rise to the level of solitary confinement, but just like solitary, Keep Lock a person is locked in one cell for 23 hours a day, only allowed out for one hour for recreation. But the difference between solitary confinement and keep lock is, and keep lock, a person could keep all his or her property. If a facility allows a person to have a television, a person can have a television, they can have their radio, they can have all their photographs, they can have all their books, all their magazines, uh, they can have their, all their underwear and all their socks, all their personal socks that their family members send in from the outside. They can have all those amenities. Uh, so but a person cannot go anywhere. So when we call it the gates crack open, when everyone's going to their programs, they're going to yard, they're going to socialize, they're going to watch television on the outside, they're going to cook together, exercise together. Um, person on Keep Lock can't do that. Just watches people walk by longingly wishing he or she can do the same thing. So that's how I sort of feel being on quarantine. I look out my window now and and I can be free. I don't want to be out in the car right now with the COVID-19. I don't want to catch this. I don't want to be on the street. But I wish that that the outside was normal again. The car is like a, a symbolism for normalcy. And I wish that everything was back to normal where I can go to the supermarket without wearing a mask and gloves. And I could talk to people. I could go have meetings in person without worrying about bringing something back that may kill me and my family. Uh, so those are the things that it reminds me of, but uh, I definitely want to say that being 
on keep lock or, or being in solitary confinement is nothing like being quarantined or COVID-19. I won't say nothing like, let me take that back. It's not extreme. It's not, it, it, being out here on quarantine is not extreme as keep lock and solitary confinement. You know, I have Netflix, I have my family, I have real food instead of prison food I could eat. Right. So I have space. You know, I could go in my backyard. I could go in my garden. You know, I can listen to D Nice on on Instagram Live. You know, <laughs> some tunes if I want. I can do all those things. You know, so it's not as shocking to me as as it was when I was first key block. And after being key block numerous times, I learned to adapt with less, and I learned to survive. So instead of like I explained in my piece, like even when I was in solitary, step further than keep lock. In order to get food, I would have to make like a kite on a line and send it down 70 feet away with an envelope of stamps on it. And a person would send another line to entangle that line and pull it in and take off the stamps and then put on bread or fruit cups or matzah crackers on it. Then I would pull those items back and I would compile it and, and take the bread, mash the bread up with milk turn it into dough and put the fruit cups inside of the contents of the fruit cut inside the mashed bread to make a pie. And that was like, a, that was like a gourmet dish for me. You know what I mean? So thinking back on those times of what I had to resort to, I don't have to resort to that now. If my neighbor wants something from me, I'll just, I prepare a rum cake. My wife prepare a rum cake. I take it over to my neighbor, leave it on, leaving in front of his, his house, ring the doorbell, give, or give him a call, text him. I left it right in front of you on your doorstep. And he just opened it and pull it in. He's not pulling the line in, but he's just pulling the plate in. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Right. And, like, a lot of people um, who aren't formerly incarcerated, you know, have, like, been taking to social media and comparing being quarantined in their homes to the feeling of being incarcerated. And I wanted to ask, just in your opinion, if you think the comparisons are at all problematic or if you think this is an opportunity where it can help people on the outside kind of reach new levels of empathy for incarcerated communities? Well, I, I don't think it's problematic in my opinion, but um, I think it is a, what we are going through in society is a taste of what people go through when they're incarcerated. So all those feelings of panic and anxiety that people feel you can you can multiply that by fifty. That's what a person is going through on keep lock and, and solitary confinement. And if and if you find that it moves you in a way to 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 do something about what you think people are going through, then you have the jump off point for it. Use this as the springboard. You know. So when 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 someone who is incarcerated it might be a family member, a friend, or someone that you know that reaches out to you and say they're on keep live or they're solitary confinement, remember what you're going through right now, and then you'll have a semblance of what their reality is. Yeah, I think this moment really is providing a really unique opportunity for building empathy in a different way. Um, and I wanted to pivot a little bit to you and ask you about um, just the value of storytelling in 
creating community when you were um, isolated from others, like when you were in keep walk or just in prison in general and what storytelling outlets um, you engaged with while you were incarcerated and um, what those opportunities offered you? Um, the most basic stories that people tell. Um, I remember uh, being in solitary confinement and when you're in solitary, you have to try to anything, anything to cope. I mean, whether it's uh, playing little games with your, your neighbor, like imaginary chessboard that you move it on numbers, move one to 36. And that person has the same board with numbers. They move your one to 36. And you say move 35 to 42. And they move 35 to 42. So it's this little chess game just by voice. And um, that's outlet for people. But many others use storytelling. There are people who, who, who get on what we call it the gate. Because, you know, think of a person with a cell, the gate. You can't see the person next to you. So you have to be on the gate to project your voice so the neighbor can hear you. And a lot of times people tell stories on the gate. And, and, and here's a, uh, it, I must say that some of the stories, a lot of people know the stories are outright lies. <laughs> but it's cool <laughs> because it's entertaining. It helps us cope. You know, people tell these elaborate, grandiose stories. And it, it was based upon a, a tidbit of truth. And they exaggerated a bit, but it's so cool. And sometimes you learn a lot from them. And a lot of them sometimes are true. And you learn a lot from them. It helps you uh, maintain your homeostasis in a time where it's tough. And um, when I was in population, uh, which is not solitary confinement or keep lock, I had the pleasure of taking part in a, a TEDx event in 2014, the first ever in a New York State prison. And um, I gave, a, I told a story, which is on, on TEDx. And, and going through that process of, of being on a time schedule in order to tell your story and have the proper elements in it and, and polish it, not um, double up on your words or be succinct and clear at the same time as being visceral and emotionally engaging. I think that was a, a great process for me to kind of build out my personality and who I was. And at the same time, it was a great way for me to connect with my, my brothers who were incarcerated with me and the community at large. And storytelling brought all those parts together. Yeah. Yeah, it's offering just the sense of connection, it sounds like. And right. Yeah. Right. And, and that's sort of how I go about my writing a bit. You know, if I'm telling the story, I try to connect it to, to experiences that people are going through, even if they haven't been incarcerated. So they can kind of, so we can find common ground and, and so they can understand what I'm feeling, what I'm going through. So the story have a deeper meaning to them than if I was just writing it in prison jargon where people only in prison would understand. Right. And thinking about to just um, out even outside of prisons, like what is storytelling's role in kind of building this community now in this moment of global isolation? The, I, I think right now, sometimes I see it on, on TV or, or it might be a commercial 
when they tell these little stories, it might be little vignettes in which they go by and a, and a narrator is, is telling you what's going on of these healthcare workers who are on the front line fighting COVID-19. I think that's the most beautiful thing that, that, that you, you see on TV today. You know, it, it takes me away from all the, all the politics and the fighting, or who's right and who's wrong. And it puts me in a space that we are all in this together. And there's people who are on the front lines working 12 hours a day, you know, trying to keep us all safe. And, and, and I tip my hat off to those people. And, and, and I'm grateful for the outlets that tell their stories. And I think for years to come, we're going to see movies. We're going to see TV shows about COVID-19 down to the, from the people who are, in their homes affected by it, parents and children, to, to police officers that had to deal with it and contract it, to the healthcare workers who had to deal with it and fight, fight, fight against the virus, destroying the whole community, to people who are incarcerated who have to deal with it. You're gonna see so many different stories that come out that's gonna be visceral. And um, I hope that people remember what we went through. Remember that we all in this together still, even if we pass this, we all in this together. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I think you're right too, that the message that we are all in this together is something that's so important. And I think you're doing that with news inside too, reminding people on the outside and incarcerated communities, you know, of the connection that we all have. So absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your time with us in this already really busy moment. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate everything that Penn does. I like to be involved. That's cool. Yeah. To read Lawrence's personal essay and for more information on News Inside, visit themarshallproject.org. This podcast is part of our weekly temperature check series which also includes original reportage by currently incarcerated writers and links to other journalism and advocacy efforts. Temperature Check can be found through our Works of Justice portal at pen.org slash worksofjustice. This episode was mixed by Robert Pollock with support from Elizabeth Fiore, researched and hosted by myself, Kate Camel, and produced by Kate Meister for PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program. Thanks for listening. <laughs>